the goal is what? To provide for your family, you know? To, to I grew up in the 80s, to man up. That's what we would say, you know? I don't think that's the thing to say these days, but uh, the point is the same, you know? Like, the step up to the plate, you know? And there's, there's value in that. There's value in discipline. I mean, that's Peterson's whole thing, is discipline. And people are craving it, you know? Responsibility. Welcome to Life is Art with James Griffin, a long-form discussion with creators, entrepreneurs, and innovators. The aim is straightforward, to better understand the world around us by listening to people who've gained some insight. Life is Art strives to bring clarity in a high-noise culture. You can learn more at lifeasart.us, where you'll find all our podcasts and notes about each guest. Today I'm sitting down with Roly Delgado, founder of Westside MMA in Little Rock. He's a realtor, property owner, public speaker, and coach. Rolly's travels to multiple continents have introduced him to high-caliber thinkers in several industries. Today, we talk about ways to look at real estate, the role of public say and government in the marketplace, and ways to evaluate what's most important to you. Sit back and enjoy as we listen to what makes Rolly Delgado tick. Rolly, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming, man. Of course. I love talking. Yeah, you do. Too bad I don't love listening. I know, right? That's what happens when you have two talkers. Especially to you. I don't know. You've never said anything of value so far. I don't know. I'm trying to be interesting. I think I'm trying too hard. Yeah. Look, you don't have to impress me. I know that I'm intimidating, uh, but just just be yourself. I'm really trying to impress myself in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. That's hard to do. That's hard to do. Look, all, all kidding aside, I know who you are, and, and you're impressive, so trying to impress yourself is pretty hard. Really, uh, you... Dude, you actually do impress me because you do so many things. Uh, you're kind of a renaissance man. You're, you have a real estate license. You know, you, you broker deals. You own properties yourself. You're an entrepreneur. Uh, you got Westside MMA over here in Little Rock. Uh, you've traveled uh, around the globe, not only for fighting MMA, but also because, you know, you've, you've created apps. You've got websites. You've got things you've done. You, you have public speaking engagements. You've done a lot, man. What, what fuels all these different activities? Uh, man, um, my mortality. That's what fuels it. Uh, you know, we just have today. So I just want to experience everything that I can. And I just uh, love the process of tackling projects and completing tasks. And so um, I've been asked, like, what kind of hobbies do I have outside of work? And there's very few. Um, there's a, there's, there's very few mixing, there's very few, there, there's very little separation of, uh, pleasure and work for me. And I feel very fortunate about that because yeah. I have to feel productive. I mean, I can take a day, I can take a half a day and drink some coffee or drink some whiskey and just kind of have a down day. But, uh, I can't do that very much without feeling anxious. And so I just, I just do stuff. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And the fact that what you do is what you love and that you found a way so that what you love produces income. That's that's the dream right there. It is. And you know what I really love is just relationships with people. And so that's really what it is. Um, uh, It's not solely it because like the real estate, I mean, as far as brokering deals, I I love that aspect of it because I really am the most honest, like, there's people as honest as I am, but you can't be any more honest. Like I'm going to tell you the truth and build a relationship with you. And if we do a deal, then that's awesome because I'm going to get paid. But if we don't do a deal, like we're at least going to be friends because whether the deal falls through or not, like you're going to know where I stand. So, um, yeah, you know, how many of your clients have you advised? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you should walk away from this deal. Even though it would make me money, you should walk away. Yeah. More, more, more often than I push people into deals, you know, like, first of all, it all starts with a conversation and an idea. So there's a good chance that, um, that's not going to come to fruition anyways. And so you really want to, um, you really want to get it all out there right away. Like, like I met with somebody the other day and they, they weren't my client. They just knew I did real estate and they were getting into their first rental. And I remember all the mistakes I made getting into my first rentals. And, uh, you know, they weren't even familiar with the 1% rule yet. And they were, they were looking at a property and it was just a nightmare. And uh, I just broke it down for them. And then 
they went back and I could tell he was still a little emotionally tied to it, but then they did another walkthrough and he just realized that, you know, he really didn't have a pulse on his numbers and uh, it's just a learning curve. And, and well, I'm starting to ramble now, but yeah, uh, I'm not, I, most deals shouldn't be done from an investment standpoint. Yeah. Most deals. And you would agree with that. You know, most deals, they're not, they're not deals that should be done from an investment standpoint. And so I, I kind of bring that perspective to things. Now, I've, I've sold a couple houses recently, like in the Bryan area. Well, they're, they're owner-occupied houses in an amazing school district. Like, it's not an investment. People have to have a place to live, and these people are choosing to buy instead of rent. And they're, they've got young kids, so they're going to be there for a long time. And so, you know, that's a little different. But guys like me and you are always seeing the numbers. Yeah. Uh, one of the axioms that I keep coming back to is that we are all emotional about our money. For sure. And when you're talking to somebody about investment properties, especially, uh, how many landlords, investment property owners, do you know that they neglect the property or they let bad tenants stay in them way too long uh, because, well, I don't want to kick them out. They got kids or whatever. Or they do jump into a deal and they pay way too much money for a piece of junk because they're connected to it somehow in some arbitrary way. Yeah. Uh, but no, it is. It's absolutely all about the numbers from the investment standpoint. Uh, it has to be. Yeah. So that's that's why you want to that 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 is some of the value that a consultant and I really consider myself a consultant more than an agent. Um, but uh, that's really the value that a real estate agent should bring to the table is like, let me listen to your needs and then let me be objective because I don't have the emotional pulls that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and much like a therapist, like I don't want to overly influence you and 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 put my dogma on you but at the same time um there's just so many blind spots in this stuff if most people are only going to buy two or three houses in their lifetime so um that and that's the biggest purchase of their life so there's so much room for error and mistake and i i want to be there to help people learn from my mistakes and my experience rather than have to go through it themselves because you know how it is you know they buy a house and two years later they get a a job opportunity that's great in another city Mm -hmm. and they've got to take money to closing Mm -hmm. that's a burn yeah nobody's expecting that nobody nobody thinks you lose money buying houses but it happens all the time oh absolutely there's always costs on the side and the numbers that are thrown around are usually kind of the gross numbers you know the gross revenue the gross income so we're going to sell this house for 150 well, if you're the seller, how much do you actually get out of it if yeah. you do sell it for 150 you know? Yeah, you're probably going to be looking at like 136 you know, yeah. like after real estate agents and uh, post-inspection repair addendums. And I mean, you're just, yeah. it's just going to nickel and dime. Your holding costs, geez, it's, it, you know, and I love real estate. I mean, I'm being a bear on it right now, but, you know, as you know, um, it's all in the prep. It's all in the numbers. It's mm-hmm. all in buying right. And um, really knowing what you want to do with the, the property. I mean, what, are, what is your end game here? You, yeah. you have to buy things with an exit strategy. Yeah. Listen, I, I love that. And I, I think being a bear on real estate is actually the wise way to be. And it, it doesn't mean that we're uh, saying people shouldn't do it. It's just saying, go in with your eyes open. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is not something that most people should do. Uh, I have people talk to me about buying real estate all the time, and I'm thinking, you should not be doing this because the reasons you're doing it are, oh, I, I love this property. No, yeah. not if it's an investment property. Love the property you live in. Love the property you spend your time in. Do not be in love with your investment properties. Yeah, yeah. I. And if you're not, and if you want to take like the art perspective of it, and it's like, well, you know, like it's not all about money and this and that, um, you know, it then why are you looking at investments? Yes. You know what I mean? Like it's a catch 22, you know? So like, um, there are passion plays, but, uh, you should be honest with yourself going into it. And if it's, there, there's a thing right now, um, I had a great conversation the other day with, um, uh, a friend of mine, Matt Ferris, he's a custom home builder. He's, he's brilliant. I mean, just tr- one of the guys that's just truly passionate about what he does and doesn't just, um, do everything for, for the price per square foot, which is what has turned the past 30 years. That's all that's been built is how cheap can we build this, uh, price per square foot. So anyways, Matt's a brilliant guy. And he was talking about the car wash on third and Broadway. And they're wanting, they're wanting to tear down this old concrete building. That's gorgeous. Um, and put a car wash up. Right. And so this historic building downtown is going to get 
uh, potentially get demolished and it's going to be gone forever. They'll be, we'll never build a building like that again and put up a car wash. And he's, you know, he's livid about it because um, of the history in the building. And so everybody on his Facebook are just up in arms about it and he's posting about it. And so I can't post on the Facebook because I won't have the time to respond to the 30 emotional arguments that I'm going to get hit with. So uh, I just called him and I was like, hey, I just want to rattle, rattle you a little bit. And uh, he, was, he was doing some work, but he could talk for a minute. And I was like, so, you know, what do you think about that building? Do you think that the government should be able to tell this guy who bought it what he can do with it? Because he bought the building as an investment and it is a cool building. So is that, is that the role of the government now that they're going to public opinion, everybody's opinion, like, okay, we don't want a car wash there. So now you're going to handicap this guy who's actually paying the mortgage every month um, for this property. Is that the role? And then it's like, well, you know, it's kind of talking about like an HOA kind of perspective and kind of maintaining the integrity of this and that. And the role of, you know, the, the, the argument then is a libertarian perspective on the role of government. And so most people like my friend, he's not a libertarian. Um, you know, they, it's a blurry line on what you want the government to do. And so you kind of want the government to save this building and say, okay, so we're going to use tax dollars then. That's, that's what we're going to do is we're all going to take a portion of our taxes and we're going to have the government do what? Buy this building from the person at a very fair market value. That way they can relieve whoever owns this building of the handcuffs that mm -hmm. they have. Because here's the reality. The building's a damn parking garage. Yeah. All right. Office space in Little Rock is a dime a dozen. You can rent space for almost nothing because there's so much vacant office space. The region's building went bankrupt, you know, like two years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so you, there's no market for the, and there's no parking. Yeah, there's parking on the first floor. It's a garage right now, you know? So the, the building's not really marketable for any, any source of business. Um, it's not, I mean, it's a garage downstairs, but it's not what you would call like an open floor plan because there's concrete pillars every so many feet. And so, you, so here you have this really cool building and everybody wants to save it, but it's, nobody's, nobody's got any skin in the game. Yeah, of course we want to save it. There's a ton of historic homes all over Little Rock that are dilapidated. It'd be great to save them, but to what end? Yeah. You know, and um, I forget how uh, I segued into this, but <laughs> I'll just end that story. Train, train of thought. Yeah, I, I prefer when all good discussions end awkwardly, just kind of drop <laughs> off the cliff. <laughs> I love that you'll love talking to me. Let's talk about your MMA. I mean, your gosh, your online profile is actually pretty significant. Your online footprint is pretty huge. Mm -hmm. uh, everything from being called the crazy Cuban to, uh, you know, your experience uh, with the UFC, your experience uh, on, on television. And of course, you own and, and run or involved in uh, Westside MMA here, but you are also connected to several other MMA gyms around the country and even out of the country. Mm -hmm. uh, walk me through kind of a brief history. What brought you to this point where you are now and where do you see it taking you? What is your exit strategy? Um, yeah, MMA. I have a love-hate relationship with MMA. I started in it, I started doing MMA and I was fascinated by MMA because I always wanted to learn how to defend myself. I was very insecure as a child. I was unathletic and very skinny. And um, you know, there's something for most men feel the desire to feel confident. And so I didn't feel confident because I knew deep down I had nothing to offer the table and a, no, nothing to bring to the table in a self-defense situation. So I started training in uh, jiu-jitsu and, and MMA, and it was more just a test for myself. So I started fighting to see if I could do it. And I, you know, I, w I wouldn't say I was good at it. I... I mean, I was because at that time it was the haves and the have-nots. You either knew how to do jiu-jitsu or you didn't, and I knew how to do jiu-jitsu. So I didn't have to be very tough because I was so much better than somebody that hadn't trained. And so that grew. But And then, you, you, you know, as we started doing it, it got tougher, and then you develop your toughness and conquer your fears and set your goals and go out and, and, and achieve them or try to at least. And it just kind of went one fight at a time. Um, I was a professional for over a decade, but I was only fighting like twice a year because it wasn't a job and the sport wasn't very big at the time. So I was, you know, going to college and I was starting, you know, I was in sales and then I started my gym and, and just kind of did it. And then when the sport got really popular, I was still young enough to take advantage of it. 
And so I landed a spot on the Ultimate Fighter, and that's when um, I wasn't really training at that point. I was just teaching jiu-jitsu. I wasn't working on my striking. I wasn't working on my wrestling. And then I ended up on the Ultimate Fighter and ended up doing three fights in the UFC, uh, one in Bellator, which are kind of like milestones. And uh, and it just kind of happened, you know? I never sat down and wrote the goal down and chased it down. I just was just living life and doing the fights. And eventually I got to a point where I realized, you know, my own limitations. I didn't have world champion uh, material in me. And so um, the sky was not the limit. And there was uh, financial goals I was trying to meet. And my body was breaking down. And I decided, you know, I got enough of this out of my system. And a side note on that is one thing that I did really well that you almost never see, you almost never see is I retired well. I fought and I got, you know, I went one and two in the UFC, so then I'm out of the UFC. I popped up a win on Bellator, had three wins in a row, trying to get back to the UFC, hit a loss. And a lot of people can't retire on a loss. And I hit that loss, but I broke my hand in that loss. And uh, I was back in a cast after being in a cast six months prior for a wrist surgery. And it just, I don't want to say it broke me. It just it just took me to the point where the squeeze, the, the juice was no longer worth the squeeze and I started to focus on some other financial endeavors, and I uh, retired. And I never made a comeback. I never made a press release about retiring, anything of that nature. I just stopped fighting and told myself I was done, and I never went back. And so you see a lot of these guys. BJ Penn lost his last seven fights, you know, and uh, I retired well. So anyways, uh, back to the MMA. And so I love talking to people and I love relationships. The guy that knocked me out in the UFC became very good friends with his coach, Nathan Leverton. That's how I've ended up in Leicestershire, uh, or how they say it, Leicester, uh, England. And I've taught there and hung out and trained there. And, um, man, the lads there are awesome. So um, I've got to travel and train a lot of places because I like to meet people and I like to talk to them. And um, I just build these relationships. You know, I've taught in Italy a couple times. I've been to Ireland. I've, you know, obviously taught in Brazil. And I love it because when you're teaching, um, you're not just relaying information. You're not just doing what you love. You're also meeting new people and creating new relationships. And that's really like the thing that keeps me in MMA because there's very, it's very hard to make money with MMA. You can, you can stroke your ego. You can be the man. You can be the guy that's coaching UFC fighters. You can be, uh, you, and you can try to leverage those things into, into uh, making a living, but it's very difficult. So I hate that aspect of it. It's a big time suck. It takes a lot of energy and time to do it, um, and, and it doesn't reward you monetarily. So that's my hate side of it, but I do love it because it is the ultimate test for a physical human being, you know, um, to, to beat another guy at a, at a high level. It's, it's just the ultimate test and the, the, the stakes are as high as you can get. I mean, the stakes were high for me fighting. They're so high for me coaching. I mean, the stakes are just so high. So that rush, uh, is something that keeps you involved as well. You do have a niche here in Little Rock with your gym, your jujitsu gym, Westside MMA. Uh, how did you find your niche and how do you see that evolving as you continue to bring in new members? Yeah. Um, well, I have a passion for jujitsu. It's something you can do late in your life at a very high, hard level, a very physical level, because we don't have the, the way the rules of jujitsu are set up. Um, you know, there's no striking. It's mostly a wrestling based art. And, and so you can do it for a long time. And so that's, that satiates my drive to be competitive. It also, I don't enjoy working out and I enjoy doing jujitsu, which is an amazing workout. So it actually keeps me in tip top shape. Um, and I don't feel like I'm like, Oh, I have to go to the gym three times this week. I just show up for jujitsu every day and do it. So, um, I naturally love it. And, uh, my, my students see that you can't fake that kind of passion. And that's why the program's really strong. Um, and, and we're, you know, I, everybody, every business says, you know, world's best cup of coffee, world's best pizza or whatever, you know, but I, I don't like saying like, oh, we're the best, but 
the reality is like objectively, like we do have the best jujitsu program in the state of Arkansas and one of the best ones in the South. Um, and that's, it's just, just, if you just look at what we've done as far as the level we've competed at our students, I mean, there's so many that have competed at really, really high levels. I mean, the, the gym in Little Rock Westside MMA is a known, uh, and it's not that everybody knows who we are, but people know who we are all over the world. They're familiar with us. Um, and then we're also the number one gym. Uh, this, if you just look at it from a number standpoint, we have the largest classes of jujitsu. We have the most, we offer the most uh, classes and we also have the most diverse group of coaches. So it's not just me. I've, I've, I didn't set out to do it, but I luckily have uh, garnered up a ton of great black belts that teach at my gym with me. And they all bring their own little style to it. And we all get along. It's amazing. Like, we all get along. There's no posturing. There's no, like, I, I see other people that run gyms, and they're always dealing with drama with their coaches. There's always problems. And we don't have any. It's amazing. I mean, I, I, don't, I can't even explain it. I don't even know if I could replicate it. Like, we just, everybody gets along. Like, we really are united. Like, we're like a united front. We're all just trying to push the brand further build the team bigger, be better versions of ourselves. And I don't know how that happened because there's just no problems. And I see it all the time. You know, I know people that own gyms. I, I network with all the other gym owners as well because we're all trying to figure out what works. How are you getting new students? What are you doing for retention? Uh, what kind of targeting are you doing on Facebook? All of this stuff. And uh, I see them always dealing with trouble and there's turnover and there's, you know, and it's a big deal in, our, in this business. Because when you lose a coach, you lose a certain number of students. So he goes and coaches at another gym or he quits and people are disenfranchised. So that cohesiveness has been awesome. And then it makes my job pleasurable because mm -hmm. I'm there to teach jiu-jitsu, not manage people. So, yeah, I can only imagine that there are a lot of egos that could be involved, especially it, it, fighting of any kind is such a testosterone driven uh, and I don't mean that in any kind of sexist way, because actually there's uh, lots of great female fighters in your gym. Uh, yeah. That when uh, when I was visiting your gym for a while, man, I was I was blown away just the strength, the fitness, the agility of all your members. Yeah. Um, but with all the adrenaline that goes through the body, I, I mean, you're in conflict physically with somebody, and I imagine that for many people that would be hard to not also find emotional conflict or as you said posturing or trying to build their own brand or their own name yeah. above others and the ego is huge i mean that's what it comes down we all have an ego i always tell my students like there's there's cliches like leave you know there's no egos in jiu-jitsu it's a lie um you just have to have a healthy ego i have a huge ego like i went to war the other day with my business partner chanel we were training and i felt like like he was being really physical with me and so I started getting really physical back with him. And we just like, I tackled him over somebody who was sitting down against the wall and we were training really hard. And um, I don't take those things personal. I, it's, 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 I love to train like that. And so when you get in that moment, like take advantage of it because you, you, know, you can't do that with everybody. Not everybody's going to be on your level and able to do that. And as soon as the round was over, you know, I just smiled at him and we shook hands, you know, because, you know, like we trained, we tr there was more intensity in that round um, than any other one. But uh, the more you do jujitsu, the more you realize, like, it's not you versus them, it's you versus you. Like, you really start to get into the philosophy of it. Like, it's really me versus me. Because if you beat me, I have to identify how I let you get into the position to do that and what could I have done differently because I cannot control what you do. I can only control what I do. So at some point I made a decision that let you in and uh, barring you being a hundred pounds bigger than me or some type of thing like that, which isn't the case for me because I tend to train with people my size because I compete against people my size. Um, so whenever something happens, well, I can't, of course you're going to try to beat me. So I can't do anything about what you're doing. You're supposed to be doing that. But what am I doing? And I have to not only, it's not just moves like that. If it was that, we would, it, it would be very boring. Mm -hmm. You know, there's emotion involved in that and there's a mentality and there's personality traits. You know, I'm a real like, just throw it on the wall and see if it sticks kind of guy. Well, that's not a way to win consistently when you're training. So I have to make myself be more conservative than I am. And then I focus on that. And then I look at around and go, oh man, like what happened there? Because I was way too conservative. Yeah. So you're constantly looking at yourself 
And it's really me versus me. And I, I truly believe that. And anybody that's competed, when I talk to my students about this and I'm, and I'm talking to the classes, anybody that's competed, they all nod when I'm talking because they get it. If you've competed, you know it's you versus you. Yeah. It's, it's very chess-like in that same manner. Uh, my brief stint so far with jiu-jitsu has been that, yes, you're learning moves and, and so forth, but there's lots of patterns. When this person comes over the top on me, I need to make sure that I'm thinking about the 15 possibilities of what could happen next. And you're thinking not just what am I doing now, but what is this going to lead to? Mm-hmm. How do I break out of this? Or how do I, how do I push them into that? And that's very chess-like. In that yeah, well, it's, all, it's funneling. Because yeah. you say, like, as the guy's getting on top of you, yeah, there's 15 things he can do. But once you wrap your legs around one of his legs, you've cut him in half. And now you've now there's only like seven realistic things that he can do. Right. And then you start uh, structurally dealing with those things. And uh, and then now there's two or three things that he can do. So you start funneling it down. So it's not and it's the same as chess. You know, you are going to, you know, you play the middle of the board and take that real estate first because that you have the most options to move. And, uh, you know, whatever it's 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 a lot of math, too. You know, you're. You're, you say, like, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that. I'm like, well, which one do you do better more often? Okay, well, that's what you should do. Mm-hmm. It's not like what you feel like doing. It's, you know, this is the sure thing. 80% of the time, this results in a submission. You do this thing, it looks cool, and 50% of the time it works, and 50% of the time it doesn't. So we're going to do the 80%, and we're going to try to get that 80 to 90%. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the, the approach I take to uh, coaching and kind of giving people some type of focus because um, – there's there's niches like oh I do real estate okay but then like the guy who's doing uh, you know thirty million dollars a year brokering deals isn't flipping houses you know because there's only so many hours in a day and if you're running those kind of numbers like you're you're you've got help but then you're managing the help oh you buy a manager and then you're managing the manager like you can't be the best broker and killing it on the flip side. And whatever else, you know, there's so many niches within a niche and jujitsu is like that as well. If you try to be world-class at every position in jujitsu, you'll fail. It's just too broad. So you have to find what works for you and you find the, you're aware of the fundamentals of the other positions, but you've got to really play your position and play it well. Mm -hmm. Where do you see uh, Westside MMA going from here? Uh, I know that you still coach in other places. Do you see more partnerships forming with this gym uh, with other gyms, do you see more interactions? Well, we uh, um, people need leadership. I need leadership, um, and so what happens is like everybody has idols. But if you like love this dude and you love his jujitsu, and he lives in California, well, you're going to see him twice a year. You know, you bring him out for a weekend twice a year. It's expensive, and you're not getting a lot of face time with him, and so. It makes sense for people uh, in this area to work with us because we've already done what they're trying to do. And we're still in the process of trying to be better versions of ourselves as well. And so uh, they're called affiliates. And so we have people that will say, hey, I want to hang my name underneath yours, essentially. And I want you to be my main coach. I can still learn from other people, but uh, I, I like what you guys are doing and I want to be a part of it. And so I can I, I think that that will continue to happen. Um and we're happy to do that because then I get to create these great relationships with people. I have people in Mountain Home, you know, uh, Northwest Arkansas, uh, Harrison, you know, Louisiana, and and, and they all kind of come to Little Rock as kind of like the local headquarters to get better and um, kind of see what we're doing and take it back to their smaller towns. Uh, one of the words I was thinking that we might enjoy dissecting is uh, art or artist. And what does that really mean in life? Um you know, it, it's one of those things where a lot of times people do say, oh, uh, you know, I'm not an artist. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not very creative. But what does that mean in in your realm as a realtor, as an entrepreneur, as a fighter, as a coach, as a friend? What is an art? And how does that really take root in our lives as a whole? Yeah, so I've given some thought, not defining it as art, but like what it means to be alive and what it means to live. And so when when we do things the hard way, we reflect on it with frustration because if I would have not done that deal, I could have done this deal, you know, and, and, and if I didn't tie myself up here, I would have been free to do this. And so we 
we, we reflect on things, which is important because that's how we predict the future and we don't make the same mistakes. That's the purpose of memory. So you don't just keep doing the same things over and over again, evolutionarily speaking. The purpose of memory is, is so that you, you know not to touch that because it's hot. So, you, so memory is not an exact reflection of what happens. Anyway, that's a side note. But um, when we look at life and, uh, and we look back on things, we're frustrated taking the long road. And so then you say, okay, like what if I could see into the future? And, uh, or, so, and so then I wake up in the morning and I know Amazon's going to be the stock to buy. So I buy Amazon. And I know the Red Sox are going to win, so I bet on the Red Sox. And I know I, I can see the future, and I know that this uh, girl is going to be at this place at this time, so I can meet her easily. You know, and so you just wake up every day, and you're just hitting home runs every day. Every day you swing the bat, you hit the ball, and it wouldn't take long for you to just wake up and not swing the bat. Because what's the point? You already know you're going to hit the ball. And so when you study like the brain, and you see like. The dopamine goes crazy on anticipation, not reward. It goes crazy on anticipation, not reward. And you, st- and you really start to dissect this stuff. You know, what is art? What does that mean to life? And it's the processes. That's why people are saying love the process, not the destination. It's the process that is art. It's the figuring your way through the world. And, and if you already had the answer, it wouldn't be worth doing if you already had the result. And so it's the anticipation of the reward and it's going through life. Um, it's not an exact mathematical equation. And so, yes, like that life is art and how we put ourselves through life is our own form of art. And the saddest thing is when you see people that are in the unhappy marriage trapped having the midlife crisis because They've, they've overextended themselves or life circumstances have hit them in a way that they are trapped and they don't have the ability to navigate through life in an artful way because they, ha- they can't leave the post office, right? They don't have a college degree and they've been at the post office for 14 years. There is no other job that they can make that amount of money. So they're stuck in the post office. They are trapped because they have some, you know, two kids and cleats baseball bats, gloves to buy, and the mortgage is high and the car broke down or they bought the wrong, you know, and there, there's no art. That's the grind. And it's not the sexy grind people are posting about on Facebook. Um, that's the sad, that's the saddest thing when you see people that are unhappy and stuck in their life circumstances, like, you know, like look at me, for example, I like living in Little Rock. I, I, people ask me, like, what's Little Rock like? I'm like, it's good and bad. There's things I really don't like about Arkansas, and there's things that I really like about Arkansas. But I am, not to say that I would leave, but I'm stuck. I have an 11-year-old son. Him, my, his mother and I aren't married anymore. So, you know, I'm stuck in Little Rock. Luckily, I'm not miserable. But even if I was miserable, it, it would take something extreme for me to ever move and, 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 and not be in the same area that my son is in. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trapped in that way. Um, not to say that if I wasn't trapped, I would leave, but it's really sad to see people that are, that aren't able to live life in an adventurous way. Cause I love projects. I love the adventure. I love to travel and, um, how I'm conquering my goals and trying to satiate myself and try to pay attention to the journey. That is how I answer your question. You know, that is what art is. Like that, that, that's how we're all artists because we don't know what's happening. We're just doing our best to anticipate what's coming up and, um, we're trying to move through life. You know, we absolutely are. We, we are on the journey you talked about. It's about the process, not the destination. The word that comes to mind as you're talking is compromise that I recognize that before me are several choices. And yes, to do this deal is going to spend it's going to take a lot of my time that I cannot devote to other things. And so I choose to make this compromise. I choose to buy this house and to sign a 30-year mortgage. I choose to sign this five-year lease on this car or whatever. We are constantly sacrificing future options for current gains, or at least what we hope are current gains. So are you saying that the, the artistic form of life is to, is to navigate that with as much creativity and as much umph, as much entrepreneurship as possible? Um, and 
what does somebody do who is locked in, who is anchored? I mean, you said, you know, that you're anchored to some degree as well, but what about the person that does not have as many options? How do they approach life in a creative way? How do they still navigate with dignity, even if they are locked in in other ways? Well, I mean, you know, full disclosure, I'm not a psychologist, but, uh, in, in my, in my, which is what you're asking, my opinion of the, of the matter is it comes down to perspective and attitude. You know, if, if I did find myself handicapped in some way, life, life, lifestyle wise or, um, physically, you know, if I found myself boxed in, I would try to adjust my perspective. I would try to basically become a Buddhist, you know, like I would, I would, I would try to be in the moment and, uh, and find pleasure where I could. I, it's hard for me to imagine because I've built my life based upon freedom. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, in some ways that's boxed me in. There's no free ride here. Like at the end of the day, when you said compromise that, you know, that even living with as much freedom as possible has compromises and, uh, there's no escape in this thing. Yeah. We're all going to die and, and we can't do it all. You can't be everywhere at once. And, uh, yeah, for the people that are, that are, that are feeling held back cause we can't do everything. So it's just a degree. There's things I can't do. And maybe it's to a, a, a lesser degree than somebody else. But, um, I think, I think having, having some type of a paradigm shift where, um, uh, what I would say to use the example, like I'm, I'm stuck at this job and I'm doing, uh, I'm doing what I have to do, right? I'm doing what I have to do. And so I would kind of make my mantra discipline at that point. Like, uh, I'm, I'm proud of myself because I don't enjoy what I do for a work, for work, for a living but I'm getting paid to do it. And that's why they're paying me because no one's going to show up and do it for free. And so I'm, you know, what's important to me is making sure that I give my kids the best opportunity for success possible. Mm -hmm. And I'm showing them like, it's what I tell my kid, you don't have to like it to eat it. Just eat it. You're going to spend 30 minutes and we're going to, the whole night's going to spiral out of control because you don't like butter, butternut squash. I won't make it again but eat it. You don't have to like it, just eat it, you know? And that's kind of like life. Sometimes it's the discipline and, uh, and I would, I would try to anchor myself in that. And then I could feel a sense of reward. So I have to go to work. I hate this job. You know, that's one perspective. It's another say I'm disciplined. Like, I don't want to be here. I'm going to clock in and I'm going to clock out, but I'm doing what needs to be done for my family. And of course, you know, we could talk about that for hours because I would hope somebody like that would be able to find something to look forward to every day, you know, and maybe with that perspective, they would look forward to seeing their kids because they're actually seeing the process when the kids are putting the cleats on. Um, we're lucky to live in an economy where very few, you know, very few people are going hungry, you know, and, 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 and we're in a fluent time where kids are able to get their cleats and, uh, uh, you know, even if it's a used baseball bat, they're going to have a bat. They're going to have their own bat to go play baseball with most, most people. And so, um, maybe with that perspective, he, that person could, could feel that joy, um, for what they're doing and how they're contributing to that, uh, to that goal, mm-hmm. which the goal is what to provide for your family, you know, mm-hmm. to, to, I grew up in the eighties to man up. That's what we would say, you know, I don't think that's the thing to say these days, but, uh, the point is the same, you know, like the step up to the plate, you know, and yeah. To fulfill your responsibilities. There's, there's value in that. Yeah. There's value in discipline. I mean, that's Peterson's whole thing is discipline and people are craving it, you know, responsibility. We talk a lot about freedom in our culture. And you even mentioned freedom as well, that that you've built a life around that concept. But a lot of times I think that we equivocate on that word. We we think freedom means the ability to do whatever I want, whenever I want. It's exactly what I, what I 
the younger me, and still to this day, I want that option. But that's exactly what the, what you described. That, that resonates. Yeah, and and yet at the same time, we recognize that that's not actually possible, hardly ever. It's it's an ideal in the sense of, uh, I want to I want to be able to travel the world for six months out of the year and just go and see and do and interview interesting people. But I, I can't because, well, I, you know, I don't have enough money or I don't, I've, I've, you're not willing to make the sacrifice. No, that's the right. Compromise. That's right. The value is not quite worth the other side of it. That's exactly right. I've accepted responsibility to do other things. I've made promises that I need to keep. I've, I've created duty and obligation and so forth. But within that, it exactly is about compromise. And freedom itself is, in my mind, amongst other things, uh, it's the ability to choose what I'm going to give up in order to get what I want. Well said. Well, uh, very well said. And a lot of people don't have the ability to choose what they're going to give up. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. You know, you give up the ability to travel so that you can eat a steak tonight if you want to, you know? Um, and that's the freedom that I enjoy. You know, I grew up relatively poor, not dirt poor, N- nowhere near dirt poor, but, but the kind of poor where like my mom didn't have the money to buy, you know, to pick up the tab if my friends were over to go out and eat. Whereas like, when my son has two friends with him, we'll go and eat and I'll just pick up the tab, you know, I was, I was that kind of poor, you know, socially poor, embarrassed that, uh, I didn't have brand new Nikes, you know, in the middle of the year, I might have a mid range pair of Nikes in the beginning of the year and it would last all year. Um, far from a sad story, but, but there were limits, there were financial limits. And so the pendulum swung to the other side where, you know, I can go buy a brand new truck right now. No, it's not a problem. Like I can, you know, and I can get the four door leather, you know, four wheel drive Chevy. That's $54,000 right now. I choose not to because, uh, that thing is going to become a weight for me. You know, it's a financial responsibility. It's a liability and I'm not going to do that. And so I forego that, um, out of fear that the checks won't keep coming in. So I forego that out of fear because I enjoy being in a position where my son loves sushi. We eat sushi probably twice a week. It's ridiculous, like how much we spend on eating sushi, but he loves to eat sushi. And I don't want to not eat the sushi because we can't afford it. And we can afford it. And that's the freedom that I like is, um, you know, I'm going to Romania in two weeks uh, and uh, um, it's for a tournament and, and I went ahead, I was like, while I'm there, I might as well go to Switzerland. I've never been. It's on the list. So I'm going to spend three or four days in Zurich. You know, I have that. That's the freedom that I've built my life around. And that's uh, um, great. You know, but the flip side is, you know, there's the value of being disciplined, you know, being a good father, making the soccer games, doing these things. So when I want to go disappear in Illinois for a month, like you talk about like six months traveling, interviewing people, like I have similar aspirations not to interview people, but you know, I would like to go to Illinois and just spend a month in this very small town where there's nothing to do but hunt and relax. And, uh, but it, it would be different because I would miss all the soccer games, you know, and that would be a month that I wasn't seeing my son and that, that lack of discipline that lack of responsibility would weigh on me more than the freedom would satiate me. Within this, that compromise, that choice that we make is also heavily regulated by time. Obviously, it's not like you can put your son's life on pause to where he doesn't age a day and you come back and you're like, all right, I'm ready to spend time with you again. Uh, Peter Sagel, who hosts an NPR show called uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, he... uh, just wrote a book called The Incomplete Guide to Running. I say just, I think, within the last couple of years. And in it, he talks about how he actually missed out on his children's lives. Uh, he missed out on his daughter's lives significantly because Saturday morning he'd go do 20 miles. And uh, so they would have breakfast without him. And it didn't even occur to him until they were graduating from high school pretty much. And, and he realized, wow, I missed a tremendous amount of time 
because I ran 25,000 miles over the last 20 years. Mm. And so he chose to run because there was great benefit for him, but he recognizes the compromise. And I can't help but think, even in my own life, that a lot of times we don't recognize what we've compromised. compromised. It's retrospective. Absolutely. No, for for me, it's being present. You know, um, when I think about that, I spend a lot of time with my son. I have him about 45% of the week. And so um, I'm not an every other weekend kind of dad, but I have him a lot. And I obviously have a million things going on. And so something that I've been just recently really trying to hold myself accountable about is being present. I can be in the same room as him, but not be present. And so I'm missing the nuances and um, I'm realizing that. And so that's something right now that's very uh, that's in the forefront of things to focus on um, because he's 11 and the years have flown by. And who knows what the teenage years are going to be like. You know, and so you just, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to focus on being present. But when you're, when you're an every other weekend kind of dad, it's very easy to be present because you make the time work better for you because you don't have much of the time. But then when you have a lot of the time, it's very easy to put it off for tomorrow or it's not a big deal or this or that. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate that I didn't have to wait until he was graduating high school to realize that I could do a better job being more present for him and for me. Um, but yeah, you know, I didn't realize it. Uh, how how do you do that? How do you be present with your son instead of just sitting in the same room watching TV or he's on his Game Boy or whatever? Yeah, I have to schedule it mentally, you know. Um, I have to say, okay, like today... Yesterday, for example, I specifically grabbed the football out of the gym and put it by my stuff so I wouldn't forget it. And the goal was to get home and play catch with my son and just just make that happen. So that's the thing. Like I have to mentally like say, okay, like I have this two hour window before I actually have to teach a class or do this or do that. And I'm going to use that time to engage him. Last night, um, he was eating his second dinner. He had dinner at the gym. And then he was like, do we have any food at the house? I'm kind of hungry. I said, I'll make you something. I made him like a peanut butter and honey sandwich. And then I played blackjack with him while he was eating his sandwich. Um, And so it was like this conscious effort to do what's important for you. And we do that with our businesses. We make the conscious effort. And something that I've realized about myself, which is kind of dark, is that I've, I've pushed myself towards this freedom and you know, whatever I define as success, I've pushed that as a priority in my life. And that's made me very selfish. And um, a lot of people can't see it because when I'm talking with people and encouraging people, like they think I'm being selfless, but that comes easy to me. That's what I enjoy doing. I enjoy helping people. I enjoy receiving help. I enjoy relationships. I enjoy talking to people. So I'm doing that. That becomes easy for me. But when I, um, when I look at when I'm planning my day out, I'm planning what's important to me. It's not always taking care of people around me. And I need to be more in tune with being present with my son and, and being a better business partner outside of the numbers, you know, and um, being a better friend to some of my friends um, and checking on them more often, paying attention. I need to do a better job of paying attention to my friends so that I can see when something's wrong and I can be a good friend. Um, and I have friends like that that do that for me and it makes me realize that I can, I, I need to do a better job of that. So I really want to become more disciplined and less selfish in those ways while of course still like trying to conquer all my dreams and set goals and smash them. Like that's, it's not mutually exclusive, but you can go too far um, to one side or another. And I feel like uh, I've been really selfish, and so I'm going to try to rectify that and find a little more balance. And the only way I can seem to do that is to schedule things like that, to make a conscious effort of like today at like this time I'm going to do this and reach out to this person. Yeah. Otherwise, I just get sucked up into the day. Well, and to do so requires that you are, you mentioned the word conscious, but that you are conscious not just of how you're going to spend your time, but you're conscious of what your values are such that you say, I see my son growing quickly 
And I'm here for that. I think a lot of people would be like, no, I'm here. I'm providing. I'm doing what I need to do. But you're saying as well, I value something beyond that. I want to be right there in the moment with him. I think it's really difficult. I, I'm, I'm guessing anyway. I, I find it within myself. It's really difficult to be conscious of all the things that I value at any given time, in part because they change, obviously. Oh, yeah. But I have my personal goals. I have my business goals, my financial goals, my my musical goals as an artist, uh, my physical goals for my body. You know, I want to lose weight. I want to be stronger. I want to look you know, better in a suit, whatever the case may be. But I do find as well that it the relational goals are the ones that we tend to daydream about but put very little effort towards because they're not as tangible. Yeah. You know, I see my I see my body in the mirror every day and think, why don't I have better abs? <laughs> That's present. But my guy friends who live in other states, they're a little easier to ignore. They're not ever present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, th- you know, thinking about that, you, you can't help but understand, you know, we, we, we're hardwired biologically to do the things that pass our genes on forward the best. And that, that, becomes like a hoarding mentality but somehow we have this this consciousness not everybody does but you know where we we uh crave well i don't say somehow it probably has to do with the fact that we're pack animals you know we're, we're social creatures they you know i don't know you're probably familiar with the harvard study they followed people for like 75 years oh, yeah, yeah. about and, happiness yeah and it's all about relationships yeah you know like people do really uh, don't do well uh, uh, by themselves, and um, so we are pack animals. So, so I think that's where this dichotomy comes from, where we want to take care of ourselves, but we also realize that we need others, and everything's based on the law of reciprocity, you know. And you can't expect people to take care of you if you don't take care of them. And so, it's not a self. I talk about being selfish well i'm i'm still being selfish when i try to be less selfish because um because i'm getting something out of that as well mm-hmm. i don't want the regret of of living a lonely life you know and uh well that's very ayn rand you know that selfishness is at the core but selfishness is not necessarily some great evil that's one of those words that, that we equivocate on a lot oh you're being selfish well of course i am Everything I do is selfish. Again, like at the beginning of the podcast, we talked about what does it mean to be selfish? Yeah. We have to identify that. Yeah. Or else we can't have the conversation or we're going to have a miscommunication the whole time. And, and what are the positive traits of it? And, and what are the not so positive traits? Or what are the benefits? And what are the things that are costs? And Well, I appreciate you bringing up Ayn Rand, you know, as a libertarian, you know. Um, <laughs> she has a special place in my heart. I think she was an incredibly brave person. Actually, I have a portrait of her in my cabin. So, yeah, huge fan. And I didn't even, I haven't read her books. I tried. I'm not a good reader. And uh, maybe the audio books I could do. But I've listened to a ton of her uh, interviews. And, I mean, she just was brilliant. And uh, that's, like, another thing that she's, another thing that she did a good job of is, like, you know, people, this is why I love good conversations. People say, like, oh, you should love everybody. It's like, well. What is love? Like, if I love everybody, then I don't... What I'm saying is I don't love anybody. Mm-hmm. Right? It, is, is it love in a Buddhist sense of, I wish good for myself, I wish good for those around me, I wish good for my enemies, and I wish good for all? Is that what we mean by, by love of everybody? Or? Well, if, if that is, that's not, the, that's not the American version of the love, but, but no. that's an appropriate one. That's a, that's a healthy way to live. That's a... One of the things that got me interested in meditation was that, like, a, a type of meditation would be to the, that I've that I've heard of is you think about the people closest to you and you you wish good things for them, and then you expand the circle. The people that aren't that close to you, you wish good things for them. You run out of people, and then you start finding people that you dislike, and you wish good things for them. And uh, I think that's really healthy, you know, to to be that way. Mm-hmm. Rising tides, you know, rise all ships, kind of thing. In that sense of the word, yeah, you should love everybody. But um, in, in the American interpretation of the word, uh, it almost means to favor. And uh, 
you can't favor everybody or you're not favoring anybody. <laughs> That's right. So that's right. That was her point, I believe. Yeah. So in the American version, does to love mean these are the people for whom I spend my resources, my time, my talents, my treasure? Uh, does it mean these are the people about whom I think fondly? Uh, it does seem that within our American culture that it's not only okay, it's actually preferred that you also hate certain people or certain things. Uh, I mean, our political climate right now really amplifies that in my mind, I, I think. Yeah. You, you know what the root of that is? Um, and there's probably several, so I, I won't wait for you to answer because it'll take me off topic. But uh, the, the root of it is, is just we're lazy because it's easy. They're not people. They're terrorists. Well, how do you know they are terrorists? You know, we're not talking about seven people. Right. You know, the people on the plane were terrorists, yes. But how do you know that? This group of people are, you cannot put that label on everybody. Um, and so you, it's, but it's easy. And so when you, when, and, and this is propaganda 101, when you dehumanize people, it becomes easy to do horrible things to them. And um, that's why we have this, this gross uh, macro approach to things because it's so simple and easy yeah. and people are lazy. Yeah. I think you're exactly right. I, I'm going to say something that might be dangerous, but I think uh, from an evolutionary standpoint, uh, racism, bigotry, all those things are completely logical in the sense that if I live in a tribe and there's you know not 7 billion people on the planet, but I live in a tribe and I know that everybody in my tribe is on my side, but that all the tribes around me are warring and they might try to steal my stuff or kill me or rape my sister or whatnot, if, if I go out in the woods and I see someone that doesn't look like they're part of my tribe, well, then I can quickly label them as enemy because there really is only two things, friend or foe. The fact that you're giving this example, I don't need to tell you, but for the listeners, science supports that. That I mean, that's fact. Yeah. We, we are all racist. There are different reactions when they're flashing for one one thousandth of a second, different faces. You have one response to people that look like you and a totally different response to people that don't look like you. This is an evolutionary trait. So, you know, how you act on that and how you deal with it obviously defines whether you're not, whether or not you're a bigot or a racist by today's standards. But evolutionary speaking, there, I mean, we all grew up in schools. Generally speaking, different groups of people sit with like-minded people, people that look the same, whether it happens to be their nationalities or the way they dress. We, we all are, are in our own little tribes. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, it's a, it is a shame that we can't have those discussions because what happens is we can have a great discussion about this and someone's going to take a clip from it and they're going to make a headline. And in the story, that's going to be biased. It'll give a little more context, maybe not the right one, but it doesn't matter because your average person, again, is lazy and they're going to read the headline and take that as the fact. And now that's a fact to them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's, you know, I, I do very little interaction on social media outside of promoting um, self-interest, you know, and keeping in touch with people that I want to keep in touch with. I can't have these conversations because I will not get sucked into. I mean, I wouldn't even post on the car wash. People are in arms that they're going to tear down this building and put up a car wash, even though the building has no marketable, uh, other than just looking at it and appreciating the fact that it's an old building that was built a long time ago and it's, it's beautiful. It has, that's all it has to bring to the table. And, and we don't live in a world that uh, runs on hopes and dreams, you know, it runs on dollars and cents. Um, but I can't even, I can't, I can't even give my resources to that because it's fruitless. It is. I, I, we're, we keep circling back to this issue of taking time to listen, to have a quality discussion. I had somebody ask me the other day, um, you know, are you a Christian? Just like somebody asked you a God, you know, hey, nice to meet you. Are you a Christian? And I said, same thing you did. Tell me what you mean by that. Mm -hmm. And he thought for a long time, more than a minute. And I just more kinda, than a minute? More that's than a, a minute. That's an eternity. And I just kind of let him. Sure. <laughs> so let's see what happens here. And he came back and his response was simply this. I'm so glad you asked that question. That's a great response. He didn't even define it at that point. He just kind of let it drop. Like, 
I think the realization was this conversation could last hours. Well, he, he probably, okay, I don't know who this person is. There's a good chance, I'll say this, that that's just a canned conversation piece that he uses that's easy in the South. You couldn't pull that. That wouldn't be a canned conversation piece in the Northeast. But here in the South, that's a canned, that's a canned conversation piece that he probably used for the next question would be, oh, you should come to church with me sometime. You know what I mean? And then, like, it's this little, like, thing, this conversation that he's had a thousand times, but not with you, because you, you, you asked him to quantify exactly what he meant. Yeah, what does that mean? Even, that. even the other, uh, you know, I asked him to define Christian, I guess, but I was also wondering, can you define belief? Like, are you a believer? Do you believe in God? What, what does that mean to believe? That'd be a fun one to dissect. Yeah. But uh, speaking of which... I'm feeling hungry. Maybe we should go have lunch. Let's define lunch. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be an easy one. I love to take the time to actually dig down on what words mean because you're exactly right. It's the only way that I find that I can, from my perspective, genuinely love someone is to offer them a safe space to give them a chance to help me understand who they are. Otherwise, for me to say I love someone is fickle. Uh, yeah. Interesting. I know uh, I'm working on becoming a better listener. It's very important to me. It's hard because I have a lot to say, and I have, I'm have i a very opinionated person. I change my opinions with evidence. Um, I'm, I'm, they are not my identity. Um, but I find to love somebody that I have to find virtues in them that impress me. And they can be virtues that I have and they can be virtues that I don't have. I admire the person that can sit down and read a book on a beautiful day and enjoy it because it seems unproductive to me. I understand the mental health benefits of it, but I cannot do it. I cannot force myself to sit down and enjoy the morning. I wake up and I get to go and I've got a lot to do and I feel good doing things. So I admire people that can do that, even, you know, uh, and I can't. But then I also admire other people that, uh, like yourself, that wake up in the morning and and live a similar life. They get to work. They got a lot of irons in the fire. They've got a lot to do. They want to live life and they're living life. And this is how they're living life. So when I think about, like, loving people, I, I, I try to identify, like, a virtue in them that I find positive. And that, luckily, that comes pretty easy for me. I mean, there are people that annoy me. I have a gym of 350 people. Like, there are people that annoy me. But in uh, almost everybody, I can find something about them that I think is pretty awesome. And I try to just focus on that. And that's how I love people. Absolutely. It, referring back to the issue of that we're all racist at some biological level just because it's easiest to connect with those that are similar to us. We feel safe in familiar surroundings. Is that not the whole point though, is to overcome the immediate impulse and instead to look beyond that moment? First thought, second thought. Have you read any on that? No. It's a kind of a neat thing. You can Google it first thought, second thought, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, you have an inclination and then like give it a moment and you'll have another inclination. And that's normally the more clear one. Um, I don't know, man. You know, people say, like, y- you should have a diverse group of friends. Well, I know a diverse group of people, but my circle's pretty common. There's some common threads there. It's the commonality that brings us together. So it sounds great to say these things, but I'm not going to hang out with the librarian. There's nothing wrong with that, obviously. You know, I, I shouldn't even have to defend it, but there's, I'm, not, I'm not downplaying that. But you just love to read books. You love to build the story in your brain and, and, and do that process. That's great. I'm happy for you. But we're going to have horrible lunches because you don't want to hear what I have to talk about, you know? Because I, when I talk, you hear stress and you're stress avert, you know? And, and so I think it's I think interacting with different cultures and and learning from different types of people and keeping your eyes open, like that's one thing. But this idea that like the lunchroom is going to look perfectly uh, integrated is false. 
and it's just it, it it is not how we're wired and it doesn't make sense and i don't know that you really probably have a lot of friends that are opposite of you no i'd have to be i'd be lying if i said i did i do have uh, lots of interactions with people who are different from me and i do have some that are quite different from me that i i intentionally reach out to on a regular basis but if i'm honest it's very purposeful it's not always it's not the normal thing it's not that our spheres overlap a ton mm-hmm. i work at it because i do see some value in it but that's not to say that it let's just say it's not my first instinct it's not the first thought it's the second thought yeah yeah exactly well played yeah really thank you so much for your time i've enjoyed uh, chatting with you and i look forward to what our friendship becomes all right thanks brother thanks for having me thank you for listening to life as art As always, if there are people that you care about that you think would enjoy this program, share it with them. They can subscribe by going to lifeasart.us, where they can also find random essays and thoughts, but more importantly, connect with the community at large and listen to previous podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next month.